Welcome to The Reframe. My name is Josiah Van Vliet. Uh, it's been a long time again, um, but I think this might be the way of things, which we'll all have to cope with. Um, a friend of mine texted me some very nice words about uh, me needing to restart this podcast, and I very much appreciated them. And, you know, he tried to encourage me, and here I am encouraged. What I would like to talk about today is uh, something I'm not sure is actually seen in the wild all that much, but I have seen it on occasion. And it is the perennial debate about how do we deal with the idea that we're supposed to be tolerant and that there are some people who are intolerant. It's a example, it's an example of really bad public discourse. It, this is a problem that's trivial to solve. This is a perfect example of the kind of stuff I would like you guys to write into me about. As we go forward, you'll see that this issue, when it comes up, is one of those issues where you're just, it's obvious it's nonsense, but why it's obviously nonsense is itself not obvious. I love these kinds of things. These things, these things are like sand in an oyster to me. Like I can't leave them alone until I can figure out structurally why this is so annoyingly clearly not something we should be talking about. And yet we're talking about it. I will build you pearls out of this stuff. So if you see stuff like this that annoys you or doesn't make sense or like has this tenor of there ought to be a way to say clearly that this is bullshit. That's the stuff I'd love for you guys to write into me about. I'll set it up a little bit and we'll see how this sounds. So every once in a while, basically Nazis will show up of, or fascists or bigots or whatever will show up. And the trolling argument of, you know, I thought you said you were tolerant, you know, so you got to put up with me will come up. And this will get treated as if it was in any way anything other than a completely fatuous argument. It is a commentary on the sad state of what counts as discourse. If you hear this set up as anything other than a troll trolled, here's why we shouldn't listen to him. Now, the, the notion from a naive perspective, and that's a philosophical, like an academic philosophical idea of naive, right? Like a not particularly deeply considered position, which naive sounds more insulting than it's meant in those contexts. It just means for people who haven't given it deep thought, the juxtaposition of tolerance and intolerance makes superficial sense. It's not in any way a philosophical conundrum that is worth anybody's time, really. But for the philosophically naive, these notions, you know, a lot of ethical notions come in as single attributes, um, like tolerance. And tolerance is one of those things that's almost always good. Or maybe it's always good. Anger. Anger's almost always bad. Maybe it's always bad. And it, the ideas come in these ranges and there's these characteristics. There, there, there may be virtues, there may be vices, there may be predilections. It's hard to imagine someone talking about lust as if it was good. But the, the ideas come in, these characteristics or traits or vices or whatever come in as either always bad, almost always bad, 50-50, almost, you know, you know, almost always good, always good. 
Um, and it's not well considered, right? It's a naive notion. But you hear this in, in both general public discourse, but also in private discourse. You can, you can sort of feel yourself um, and you can hear regular people talking about different emotions and different, again, like predilections or characteristics that they either like or don't like and think that, that it's straightforward to say that those things are bad or good. Like, I don't get angry or, you know, that person, blah, 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 simple notions. Um, that person's intolerant, that person's tolerant. And they, they come across as these, you know, very point issues. And that's the notion. Yeah, this isn't even a systematic notion, right? This isn't part of a larger structure. It's not part of a, an ethical structure that people are familiar with, that they're using. It's just in general discourse, this is how people think. It's how people talk about stuff, which is fine for most purposes. But if you're going to have someone who's being paid to have public discourse and they are presenting you with like, oh, I don't know, tolerant or intolerant, blah, 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 blah. They're pretending to be stupid and they're dumbing stuff down in a way that like is pointless or manipulative. And these kind of notions can get sort of sticky if everybody in the conversation has a naive notion or has a naive framework to analyze these things. Because if you have two people who don't have a history of deep thought or even the awareness, the awareness of the possibility of deep thought on an issue, you can get very superficial analyses and very superficial rhetoric. And what's worse than like two people having no way out of this argument and you can sort of imagine that, you know, there are people who have had this argument, um, tolerant versus intolerant. What do we do about the intolerant? And like, if we're intolerant of the intolerant, then what does that say about us? There's a book I should really finish reading before I publish this podcast and I'm not going to, and I'm sorry, Zach. But what's worse than two people having these kinds of arguments is a single person having this kind of argument. This is a sort of deeper point that's not necessarily super on top of this, but if you have a naive notion, if you if you don't know that deep, clever thinking can happen on a subject and you're confronted with that subject, you can end up with a sort of self-argumentation and a sort of self-talk situation where you don't yourself know how to get yourself comfortable with what you need to do. And this occurs to me, I see this most clearly and most frequently in terms of grief, especially about old infirm relatives. Because what will happen is someone will, someone in someone's family will get very, very old and very, very infirm, and caring for them is tremendously expensive, super inconvenient, and emotionally draining, and it's just a huge problem that these people like need all this care that people would frankly rather be doing other stuff or not even doing other other stuff. They're just running out of money or running out of time or like they've got kids and a job and a grandmother and like there isn't time in the day. And then what will happen is that person will pass away. And the only appropriate emotion people seem to think that they're allowed to have is grief or like grief and its attendant emotions. And if they pay too much attention, they will notice that they feel relief. And then if they feel it and they notice it, they may feel 
guilt about being relieved. But the thing is that someone dying isn't a unipolar event. There are all kinds of things that happen when someone die. And if that person required a lot of care, one of those things is you just got back a ton of money and a ton of free time. And you can have those two feelings of grief and relief at the same time. And they don't cancel each other out. They don't make you a bad person. You just had a loss and a gain at the same time from the same event. In in that sense, like the, the naive notion is that like, you're not supposed to feel good about something bad and like you're not supposed to and like that somehow you're supposed to have one response to an event that big. It's just not true. It's not how anything works. It's not how people work at all. And and in this regard, this tolerance intolerance thing, I can see how, you know, this would again lend itself towards these kinds of internal conflicts where the not deeply considered position is difficult to resolve which is why I'm doing a podcast on this, really, frankly. Okay, so ignoring the fact that this is, like, superficially a naive problem, and I should say, I'm not mad at anybody who didn't think this through. Like, this is the stuff that academic philosophy should be bringing out of its own world into the world for people. Like, this is the kind of stuff that philosophy can do for people, and it doesn't. It, like does other stuff that nobody cares about. Obviously, I think that there ought to be more public philosophy stuff, given the fact that I am currently going through the trouble of putting out a podcast about it, but still in all, like this is not a task for most people. Only one person in, you know, a hundred only one person in a hundred thousand, one person in a million needs to think this stuff through. And then everybody else can just be like, oh right, that makes sense, and move forward. So if I sound like I'm criticizing. I'm not. I don't think anybody else should have to figure this out. It bothers me that the media professionals put forward this kind of stuff. It does not bother me that other people just sort of like glom past this. I think just brushing over these kinds of problems is absolutely the right response for most people. Anyway, I just didn't want to sound condescending on by mistake. I mean, if I'm going to do it on purpose, that's fine, but by mistake is rude. So... As a, as a philosophical problem, this is really straightforward. There's like a million ways out of this. Tolerance, or the lack thereof, is clearly an ethical problem. And in for anybody with any ethical, academic, philosophical, ethical training, this is a no-brainer. This is super easy. There are, when you're going to describe ethical systems, there are four kinds, basically. There is deontology, which is rules-based ethical systems. Think religion and law. Um, there are there's consequentialism or utilitarianism, and in this, it's sort of like greatest good for the greatest number kind of stuff, where you're just doing the math about well, what's going to happen to who, and like, well, if and adding up all the effects of your actions. And then there's virtue ethics which is sort of looking towards people who seem ethical and using them as examples about how to be virtuous and emulating their characteristics. And then there's non-cognitivism, which after a degree in philosophy and you know a bunch of reading about this, I found out about this last week. I did not know that this was a branch of 
you know, meta ethics, but it is. This is probably now what I believe because it's the newest. Uh, I like it the best. It's super weird. I'm not sure it really does anybody any good. And again, at no point in my undergraduate education did anybody mention that this stuff existed. Basically, it boils down to uh, virtues are not rational. They're emotional. And I think there's some compelling argument there about how values are instantiated in brains. So those are the four categories. Deontology, consequentialism, virtue ethics, and non-cognitivism. I don't like at all academic ethical work. It is, it's using the tools of contemporary philosophy to describe ethical systems, which is the wrong way, which is like completely separate from how ethics happens. Ethics happens in brains and in bodies and in behavior. It does not happen in books. It does not happen in arguments. Not that arguments don't play a role, not that like internal consistency and persuasion and all and rhetoric and logic, not that those don't play a part in human ethics, but the place where ethics happens, the place where people make decisions is in big, poorly understood, wet neural networks that have a history of evolution, a personal history, and like a contemporary physical state, all of which matter a lot to how people actually work and does not show up in academic work hardly at all. And it strikes me as trying to find out more about physics by looking at the physics textbook with a microscope, which is missing the point. So if you're going to do rules-based stuff, again, you're going to thinking thinking about laws and rules. This kind of stuff has a weakness in around exceptions, right? Like sometimes it's right to lie, but writing rules that capture that it's right to lie is difficult. And this is why I, deontology is the least, my least favorite of these systems. Uh, I'm not a rules guy, never have been. I liked consequentialism a lot for a long time, but it has some very bad problems because if you're going to go for the greatest good and for the greatest number and the system you're analyzing has a sadist in it, well, he likes hurting people and that does weird stuff to your math because for him, hurting people is good. Um, also, the other real bad problem with consequentialism is that the way that people actually behave is very egocentric and very local. And if you were to take a consequentialist theory seriously, everyone would matter as much as everybody else. And clearly nobody acts like strangers matter as much as family. And it's not clear that it would be good if they did. Virtue ethics has, I think, a lot of charm to it. Most of virtue ethics goes back to Aristotle's book, the, I'm going to missay this probably, Nicomedean. And that book was actually a letter to his son, Nicodemus. So the whole history of virtue ethics is based on a father writing a letter to his son or writing a book to his son. And it makes the whole thing so much more charming just from start to finish. Like the entire history is just this like really cute dad letter. Amazing. Non-cognitivism. Again, I found out about this last week. I don't think we really need to get into it too much. It's pretty weird. But those are the things, right? And so, and again, that's those are methods of explaining ethical systems so that if you were to have an ethical system, it would probably fall into one of those four categories. But what this does 
more or less is like if you had an ethical problem or you had a new situation you wanted to figure out how am I going to be a good person about this situation that I don't know much about you have basically three options you can find a set of rules that you think makes sense you can do a bunch of the math about what the consequences of your actions are and try and make sure that you're acting right in those terms or you can find somebody who seems virtuous and then emulate them. And that's really what people actually do is those three things. Um, and those are the three more or less basic options that you have. And you can go into which system is going to make you believe this or believe that or what's best for people to, to follow. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. Because the thing is that anybody who had any skill or experience working within any of these systems would take this tolerance-intolerance problem and tear it to shreds. There's a million ways out of this from every system. Just to cover three of the systems, right? There's You get out of this conundrum, supposed conundrum, a million ways, but let's just cover three based on the three that I've talked about. So you have deontology, the rule-based way out. And in this can, in, from this consideration, from this perspective, you'd want to talk about, again, there's multiple ways to do this, but you could talk about the people as a protected class, right? So race, ethnicity, religious background, national origin, um, whatever the protected classes are, um, the law protects those, those classes of people from bigotry. And so tolerance of those people is legally mandated. And tolerance of people who want to oppress those people is not legally mandated. Now you get into a little bit of their speech is protected. Sure. But like the goal of their speech is not protected. And I think that should be fairly straightforward. So from a rule-based system, you could just say, look, I'm, I'm obliged to tolerate those people and your speech is pushing us in the direction of not tolerating those people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the people who are protected and I'm going to stand against the people who are attacking them, even rhetorically. So the consequentialist perspective is what's the most good for the greatest number? And you can measure that a bunch of different ways, but the people who are oppressed, if we stopped oppressing them, all of their lives would increase. Their ability to participate in the culture would increase. Um, we would both give them more and get more from them. Whereas these notions of oppression and intolerance do no good for anybody. Um, the intolerance is based on ignorance. There's nothing wrong with the people being oppressed. So you're putting people down for no reason. The people who put those people down get nothing out of it. Um, and everyone's worse off just right on the face of it. It's a, a negative feedback loop. And you don't need to really think about, you know, so being tolerant of and building up oppressed people gives a bunch of benefits all over the place and continuing to the to oppress them is bad for everybody in the system there's no 
vagary about how to deal with that from a consequentialist perspective. From a virtue ethics perspective, it gets a little funny because virtue ethics depends on having a group of people who have a set of goals, and we live in a very liberal, individualistic culture. Um, so the sort of pro-liberty virtue ethics sort of falls apart in interesting ways that uh, don't matter really here. Um, but if you wanted to think about the goods of the country and the uh, the goals of the country to support individual liberty, um, you know, the whole point of the government in a lot of ways is to secure liberty for pe- for everyone except for the people who uh, have had via due process their liberties taken away. So the virtuous American citizen is going to be for tolerance of otherwise marginalized groups because those people have no justification. There's no justification for taking away their liberties. Whereas people who are trying to impinge on the liberties of others without due process are clearly against the values and virtues of the country itself. And so it's, it's that easy, right? Just two minutes giving you three examples from three different entirely different philosophical perspectives. And of course, all of those are problematic and could be criticized a million ways to Sunday, but leave me alone. Uh, they're thumbnail sketches. But it just shows you how trivial and superficial a dilemma this is and what just clickbait the whole argument is. Here's the, the, the crux of the thing for me. The reason that I'm doing this podcast about this is the public discourse that we're faced with is a capitalist money grubbing profit seeking discourse and one of the things that it does is it writes to the lowest common denominator and this is talked about a lot in terms of you know the grammar usage and the word usage but i think also at the the sort of rhetoric and analysis level that we're 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 given eighth grade thinking in eighth grade language on a good day. And if you are confronted with discourse that treats you as stupid, ask for better, please, because we're training the entire culture to be dumb. And ask ask for better from the people who put it forward. Ask for better from me. Uh, again, this stuff... These kinds of issues, I love tearing this stuff apart. Um, the idea that someone who I know is confused about these things makes trying to figure out how to talk about it clearly much more interesting to me. Um, again, it's you know me yelling at my radio is uh, or at my headphone podcasts, I guess, um, isn't as compelling as like having someone email me and be like, "Hey, Josiah, this jerk said something dumb, and I don't know why it's dumb." Um, so, you know, ask for better. Our public discourse is trash, and we could be talking about interesting things, but instead we're talking about things that are upsetting. We live in a world that's super complicated. Um, I've heard it said apocryphally that Alexander the Great, who lived you know, around 350 BC, that Alexander the Great was the last human being who knew everything that an educa- educated person knew. 
He was basically the last person who knew the sum total of human knowledge. Again, it does not matter if that's true or not. It makes a point about how complicated the world has gotten in the intervening 2,400 years. And we now live in a world in which, in where, in which no one can know everything. Um, and everybody has to trust somebody else to explain something or to know something or to be able to do something. And this goes you know, from plumbing to international politics. You have no choice but to evaluate not the issues themselves, to evaluate the secondary and tertiary sources that you actually have time to get to. No one has time for primary source research on everything, you know, and most people don't have time for primary source research on anything. Um, And so when you live and breathe in the postmodern culture that we do in which everything is derivative and derivative of authority eventually, um, I think that the thing that the skill that should be developed is being able to tell the difference between good experts and bad experts because you can't make everybody an expert in everything. So you're going to have to trust on experts. Then the thing you should do at that point is be good at evaluating experts. It's something I encourage you to consider um, and encourage you to encourage. Um, you know, if again, reach out to the media sources that you have and, and instead of yelling at them about Janet Jackson's nipple, you could yell at them about the fact that they put forward a stupid argument that anybody with an undergraduate in philosophy could tear apart and that you are not stupid. They are not stupid. The people that they have on their TV programs also aren't stupid. And that if they sound dumb, it's because they have a reason. And this then leads into a larger point about how we have ended up politically where we are. Because these kinds of idiot positions are put forward and treated as if they were actual controversies. Trusting in the experts that matter and figuring out how to trust the right experts would resolve these issues 100%. And we would just be forced to deal with the then interesting problem of how to fix problem, how to fix the problem as opposed to whether or not there was a problem or how to describe it. We have the... I mean, certainly the stupidest and most mendacious president of my lifetime in office. I think the, I mean, maybe the end of the Reagan administration, um, where he actually had Alzheimer's. The man was actually less cognitively functional than than Trump is. But um, I think, in terms of the thinking that gets done in the in the Oval Office, I think we're at a an absolute nadir uh, in terms of my lifetime. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, I think part of the reason is as follows. At some point, it's in the 70s, the rich decided to use their power to lower their own taxes. And the rich wanted to be richer. From what I, whatever, let's say they were right when they started. The incredibly high progressive tax rates at the at the top of the income curve were actually damaging. Quickly, we got to a place where making the rich richer served no rational justification from a national perspective, right? Obviously, the rich it, this is a good idea for the rich, but from the perspective of the country as a whole, letting the wealthy accumulate more wealth 
has no rational justification um, from a national interest perspective. But if you're going to try and wield political power to cre- to create a rationally unjustifiable outcome, you're going to have to lie and you're going to have to put forward non-rational arguments, which they have done. And they've had to hire people who either you know, believe those non-rational arguments or are morally corrupt to the point where they're willing to put them forward. But at some point, what has happened is that the powers that be have put forward not just non-rational arguments and lies, but they've put forward a system, they've attacked rational discourse itself. And they've put forward false virtues about who you should believe and how you should understand things. And they've created a party, the Republican Party, has culturally become an entity that disrespects rational discourse. And it disrespects honest debate. Because the only way to put forward 40 years of lies about whose taxes should go where, the only way to do that, or the way that they did do that, is they have created a subculture within our culture of people who don't believe in complicated ideas, who don't believe in honest discourse. They have been trained to only believe hucksters. And so you have an entire class of people who think that con men are the only honest people in the room. And they've been trained by con men to do this. And now they say that the most mendacious president of my lifetime is like the only honest guy in the room because he's the only person who comports with their intuition about honesty. But their intuition has, over the course of a generation, been corrupted for the sake of the rich getting richer. And stupid, trolly arguments about, well, you're being intolerant of my intolerance. This is the kind of nonsense that they've been putting forward as real justification for stuff, and it makes me insane. So, to conclude a somewhat rambling podcast, um, if you hear really bad arguments... Uh, let me know, um, uh, or let the people putting them forward know. Uh, if you hear drivel, don't just put up with it. Don't fight with it. And if you're the kind of person to, if you're not the kind of person to figure out why drivel is drivel, uh, it's absolutely my jam. Um, because we've got real stuff going on and, uh, there's, Far too much to do to have a sense of ennui, which is a realization I've had very recently. Um, A friend of mine and I have a handshake about having a sprint of content, um, so you can expect more recordings and about the level, same level of coherence. My friend Zach Boss uh, and I have agreed to put out uh, 15 minutes of audio a week um, for an unknown period of time. 
um, hopefully just to get me in the habit. And uh, I'd like y'all to hear his voice as well. He and I have a a great uh, dynamic, I think. If you're into my dynamic, then you'll be into him and I, I'm sure. Um, I appreciate your patience, time, and consideration. My name is Josiah, and this has been The Reframe.